Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast. I'm Ellie. I'm Ben. And we're here to talk all things wildlife gardening, if you're new to the podcast. So we normally kick off with things that we've seen in the garden. And if you're following us on Facebook, you might have seen that Ben's had a bit of an accident. So he's not been out and about as much as me. <laughs> that sounds like... I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like you wet yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had a foot injury. Well, I didn't even have an accident. Nothing happened. Yeah. I just woke up with a bad foot. I think he just wanted to stay at home. But anyway, uh, I think it means that I've actually got a head start on you, this this podcast, though. I've seen loads in the last two weeks. Orange tip butterflies, nice fresh ones, obviously just emerged, drying themselves out on flowers. Nice. Uh, yesterday I saw speckled woods as well, which I lo- that's one of my favourite butterflies. Yeah, just flying about in like some dappled woodland really nice Mm. and really excitingly i found a great pond snail which is limnea stagnalis in one of the ponds that we built a couple of years ago in a customer's garden it was a huge thing as well in a tiny little pond yeah they're like a a normal pond snail but bigger it looks like they've got horns out the front doesn't it almost yeah the antennae it was it was pretty big chunky chunky snail not seen it there before so it'd obviously been hiding away but also, we keep mentioning the hairy-footed flower bee, and I've seen loads recently, because I think as it's got a bit warmer, the females have emerged because they tend to come out a bit later. Yeah, they're all over the place, aren't they? And the males are ardently trying to mate, and the females don't Do look that business. interested. Yeah. But yeah, they're one of our favourites, uh, particularly this year. We just seem to have noticed them everywhere, and they're really fantastic pollinators of the early flowering plants. So yeah, look out for them. One thing we I have seen at home, I've seen various other mining bees, and um, we mentioned them last time, the tawny mining bees, wasn't it? We mentioned yeah, last yeah. time. I'm not sure what species we have in the garden. I can only really recognise tawny and ashy mining bees. Do you know how many there are? No. Nope. Often- no. Okay. <laughs> we'll gloss over that. <laughs> they're all in the. And- I think they're Andrina, aren't they? They're in the Andrina genus. Yeah. I mean, um, we we do have just under 250 solitary bee species so to know all of them does require a bit of homework doesn't it which and we're always learning as we always say and we've been out to the woods as well and seen well now is the time as i put on facebook and twitter recently now is the time to get out and look at the woodland flora because the the leaves are just coming out on the trees and a lot of these uh they call them the pre-vernal species don't they the ones that come out before the leaves on the trees they're all out at the minute aren't they so all the wood anemone wood sorrel carpets of wood anemone in one patch of woodland that we go to but also apparently i'm as good at spotting bank voles as i am sparrowhawks and ben is as bad at that as he (laughs) is at spotting sparrowhawks because i kept seeing bank voles and he just i think he just looked away you just looked at the way at exactly the wrong moment it is ridiculous i was looking at this bit of rustling (laughs) just leaf and I was looking at it for about five minutes, stock still, waiting to see something. I sort of blinked and looked down at my bag for half a second. And then there it went. I'm just convinced they heard you coming on your crutches. That was the problem. Again, <laughs> another disadvantage. Yeah, Cl- clattering around. Along. <laughs> it's not good for hiding, is it? <laughs> no, I need to wrap them in like camo tape or something like that. Actually, one of our friends suggested socks <laughs> for the, for the oh, yeah. bottom of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's yeah. try it. Yeah, so really and truly, now is the time to get out and about and spot things because everything is really starting to emerge and frantically building nests. And uh, what I did enjoy seeing actually is, um, well, unfortunately, a lot of our ponds are sort of uh, drying up a little with the lack of rain. But it's left a really nice muddy bank on a lot of them. And I've actually been able to watch, I think, red mason bees collecting up soil 
to build their well this sort of nest you know their cocoons for their eggs which has been really fascinating to watch that is a top spot that is a top spot yes yeah because i've seen the if you have these tubes for solitary bees i've seen them plugged with mud but i don't think i've actually seen red mason bees collecting the mud live yeah it was really, that's nice i'm jealous really cool. of that one there were quite a few different species that were just sort of on the mud so but mm. i'm pretty sure one of them was red mason So normally we would do a little news section and last time we covered Peat Free April. Yeah, that's right. This time we're actually going to be doing or promoting No Mow May. Now this is something that absolutely anyone with a lawn can do and it it very simply involves not mowing your patch of grass. Yeah, it's pretty, it does what it says on the lawn mower. We'll leave that in. (laughs) I'm going to leave gardening and become a marketing person. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, Yeah, this is something that's been organised by Plant Life. And actually, a couple of our customers did it last year. That's where we actually found out about it, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And it's amazing to see what really comes up in what would normally just be a green sward. And as I said, it simply asks you to leave your mower in the shed and let the flowers grow for a month. But as well as asking you not to mow, they're also asking gardeners who do it to send in the data through their citizen science project, Every Flower Counts, which they carry out every year towards the end of May. So you don't mow for a month and then towards the end of the month, you have a look at what species you've got and collect that data and then send it over to them via their website. It's just like the Big Garden Bird Watch, something like that. I think it's, yeah, just a three day section or something. We'll link to it on the website. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you just fill in a form online with, with the flowers that you found in your lawn. And last year, they found some really, really incredible results from the sample of gardens that people sent in. Over 200 species were found flowering on lawns, including rarities such as the meadow saxifrage, which is really pretty, knotted clover and eyebright, which is actually a semi-parasitic plant with little low white flowers with a yellow centre. I've always wanted to see eyebright. Well, we need to yeah, encourage seen it, more the- people not to mow then. The top three most abundant lawn flowers that were found were daisies, which Surprise. I just think is, <laughs> they are really beautiful and so underrated because I think they're, they're so common. Um, white clover and also self-heal. And over half a million flowers were counted, including, going back to the daisies, 191,200 daisies in that total. That must have been a really long day in one person's garden. Yep. <laughs> And all lawn flowers in the survey combined produced a colossal 23 kilograms of nectar sugar every single day. So just think about how many insects that can actually support. And from that, 80% of lawns supported the equivalent of around 400 bees a day from the nectar sugar produced by flowers such as dandelion, which is a fantastic resource for bees. If you can leave them to flower, please do. If you're going to have dandelions, they can be a bit of a pain in um, paving and stuff like that but why not in a lawn? They're just so stunning. And if you really don't want them to spread too much, just take the flower heads off once they finish flowering. Quite simple. Yeah. And then, yep, you've got a perennial flower that won't spread too much. And another plant that was really good was white clover and also the self-heal in terms of nectar production. But 20% of lawns, which were actually dubbed super lawns, were found <laughs> to be supporting 10 times as many. So that's up to 4,000 bees a day. I think we need to be aiming to be super lawn status yeah. for some of our gardens. Well, we don't have a lawn. I know, but we can promote it. Promote. <laughs> Use your marketing skills. Yeah. 
So one outcome of the study that I really particularly liked was that they actually worked out the best way to mow your lawn and it actually involves giving it a bit of a style. Now after a year of none of us having haircuts, we all know this uh, need for style at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I certainly need to go and get mine cut. But yeah, the oh, same- I cut yours. Oh, sorry. I mean, <laughs> it needs to be done again. it's growing very fast so the style that most benefits the wildlife coming to your lawn is a mohican style and this involves leaving a longer central area with mown edges and all that means is that you've got a variety of grass and flower height so different things can actually flower and different insects can obviously use those different lengths keep some of your grass short and mow it once a, a month so it's you know a couple of inches high um and that encourages all the extra flowering of the small species so yeah like ellie said the clover and the cell field and stuff like that dandelions but then just leave some of it to grow long and that's when you'll get the other species like oxide daisy field scabious can come up and knapweed which is a really good resource both for the flowers and the nectar but also the seeds at the end if you can allow it to actually go to seed exactly yeah yeah it's a really fantastic thing to do and what we've seen if especially if you've got a really big lawn is to mow paths through that so you're not just you know stopping any access to all of your lawn you can actually create quite creative different um yeah pathways through it which is really nice yeah something i heard bob flowered you say actually on gardeners question time was what he does he's got a big meadow and he leaves all of the sides completely uncut and then he mows a big section in the middle every two months and then an even thinner section in between that section every month. So essentially you've got this gradation mm. coming down to a path in the middle, which means he's got short grass on the path. You know, either side he's got grass that's only mown occasionally, and then the, the long, long unmown stuff. grass at the side. Yeah, and it's and less yeah, work do... each time as well, isn't it? You, exactly. You're actually making less work for yourself, but also a really beautiful thing to look out onto. Yeah, so when they say Mohican, it's just one style, but you could you could mow whatever sections you want and leave whatever sections uncut. You could mow a circular section in amongst long yeah. grass. That would be really nice to go yeah, and have picnics definitely. or to play with the kids. The world is your oyster, as they yeah, say. exactly. So following from that, if you're really, really keen, then I would also encourage you try Let It Bloom June, which just involves continuing your No Mo May. And also, this this is my favourite, Knee High July, which could be a bit kinky, but it's not. (laughs) It's referring to just keep those plants unmown. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to be doing a future episode all about wildflower meadows and gardens. And as we said, they are fairly technical. Don't want to put people off, but it's worth uh, listening to that episode if that's what you want to create. Yeah, so that would involve more of the planting specific plants, adding extra seed into your mix. Don't give away all the tips now, Ben. Yeah, but but all of the the more difficult stuff that just allowing your grass to grow doesn't involve. Exactly. And I would just also like to add that Victoria Hillman, which is one of the co-presenters on the UK Wildlife Podcast, who also likes to let her lawn grow a bit wild for the wildlife, has actually encouraged or or rather found bee orchids in her lawn. They just came up. She didn't know how they got there. And yeah, it's been really fun to like follow her bee orchid progress. Yeah, exactly. It's actually quite common to find bee orchids popping up in lawns if you leave them alone mm-hmm. if you don't mow them um and also some of the you know common spotted orchids some stuff like that as well so you know you'll be you amazed what can come up 
gardening without effort. You can't really say better than that. And also we, we've just revisited this, but Chris Packham did a, an episode on the BBC called The British Garden, Life and Death on Your Lawn. It was actually made in 2017, but they've just re-released it. And we think maybe to coincide with No Mo May. Yeah. And it is a really, really good programme. It's quite long. It's like a mini uh, film, really. Eight to nine minutes, I think. But it's, yeah, very much worth watching if you're interested in this sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And they, they talk about all the differences in different lawn heights and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, don't mow in May. Watch that programme and see what comes up. So what other events are there as well, well as that? For every episode, we include a Google Calendar um, at the bottom of the notes, and on that we have all of the upcoming events that we found from various different organisations over the next couple of months. And so just to let you know, we've actually just updated our website with a page just for the podcast. So yeah, so you can go on to com forward slash podcast and on there will be um, a specific post for each episode. And like I say, within that will be this Google calendar with all the events that are coming up. Ben's also been writing a blog, which you can access on there. And it, it it's about all kinds of different things like how to plant trees through to why comfrey is good things like that so yeah it's definitely worth looking yeah so i'm just going to pick out three events that look particularly interesting coming up in the next month all of the times pricing all the other details are in links in the google calendar so on wednesday the 5th of may garden organic are running a two-hour online course called first steps in organic growing So if you want to know how to grow some of your own food this year uh, and don't know where to start, that is a brilliant place to look. We are members of Garden Organic ourselves and a lot of their advice is just fantastic, including, well, particularly for for fruit and veg growing, isn't it? How to deal with pests organically and stuff like that. There's not really a comparable resource, I don't think. And yeah, being a member just helps them continue, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the 10th of may the surrey wildlife trust have a talk and these are all online by the way and this one is called the impact of wildfire which although not strictly about gardens is a massive issue for um how we manage land generally in the countryside Um, and it's certainly something i'd like to know more about and i know up in the peak district near us they've started writing to retailers again to try and get them to ban um disposable barbecues because they cause such problems up in the moorland it's just unbelievable that they're not banned yet it's yeah. just yeah i don't even want to start on no, that actually <laughs> we won't start but um yeah it would be good to if anybody wants to know more about the science and what's how that affects the way we manage land then that's a really good place to look uh, and finally and this is probably my my best one that's coming up the field studies council as part of their natural history live project which has been doing lectures on and off uh, for a couple of months now they have a talk called slimy sticky and unloved slugs in britain (laughs) yeah and it's um run by somebody called imogen cavadino who and this is a quote is um working on a phd on understanding slug and snail ecology in gardens with the royal horticultural society newcastle university and the center for ecology and hydrology Um, And as part of her PhD, she is leading the RHS Cellar Slug Survey. And she is also a member for the Conchological Society of Britain and Ireland. 
and acts as verifier for ter- terrestrial mollusk records on iRecord. Busy lady. Yeah. Now, I hope she's got gloves. Yeah. I don't know if you've got slug slime on you, but it doesn't come off very easily. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, who <laughs> was it? Weird. Us. <laughs> No? No, no, somebody... Oh, talcum powder, that's the trick. Oh, yeah, I heard yeah, dry it uh, Dr. Ian Bedford um, on, what would it have been, on Roots and All, saying that is the way to get the, get it off. Yeah, talcum <laughs> powder. But yeah, what I loved about that is we uh, actually, as a blog on the website, um, I've put a complete list of websites for wildlife gardeners, that's what it's called, and it's just a long list of every sort of natural history gardening organisation that I am aware of. Um, but I hadn't come across that before, and... What is amazing about the UK are these these specialist societies. It's just there's something, whatever you are into, <laughs> there is a society out there for you. So, yeah, if you're into slugs and snails, look up the Conchological Society of Britain and Ireland. Excellent. And just before we go into our topic of today's podcast and also the native plant of the week, in the next podcast, we're going to be airing the interview that we carried out with our good friend, Gareth Richards of the RHS, yep. which was really lovely. That was nice to get out and about last Tuesday and see him. And in six weeks time, so that's from now, we'll also be then talking about his new book, Do Bees Need Weed? So this is your heads up six week uh, notification to get out and get yourself a copy and read along with us and then we'll be uh, sharing various facts and things in in the coming weeks and then be reviewing it in six weeks time that's right we'll put the isbn number and some places you can buy it um, in the show notes um, but we'll be sharing facts from the book on facebook and twitter and you can find us at facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast and on twitter we are at the wild gdn um so yeah if you want to find out some facts from that book uh then please do follow us on there and also if you do follow us let us know what you're up to in your gardens we absolutely love to hear about it and also if you're not on either of those you can just email us direct um so you can email us at the wildlife garden at hotmail.com excellent so what is today's topic ben we are talking about night-scented plants. I'm going to go into a bit of detail about night-scented plants and scented plants just generally. But the first thing to say is why we should grow night-scented plants. In particular, why should you give space over in your garden for them? So the first one is simple and it makes your garden at home feel like a Mediterranean holiday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing about going to the Med on holiday is the scent of jasmine, in the evening really isn't it that's that is what makes it so special and we'll come on to whether jasmine is a good one to grow at home but there are so many other plants that fill your garden with scent in the evening and we really think the gardens without scent are are, are missing something aren't they definitely it's a huge part of the garden really and although typical garden plants like roses they are heavily scented you know forgetting all the coronavirus lockdown and all that sort of stuff in a normal week you would actually be out during the daytime five out of seven days of the week. You know, many people will be. Mm. So actually the time you want scent is when you come home from work and you're sitting out with a cup of tea or a G&T or whatever in the evening. That's 
really when you're going to make most benefit of scented plants in your garden so yeah i'd really recommend planting some in your garden if yeah, you can so it's not just for the insects it's a garden thing for you as well yeah exactly but they are vital for nocturnal foraging and breeding insects and particularly the night flying moths in the uk some beetle species as well do most do their um, work in the evenings and in some parts of the world even bats are um, big night pollinators um, so in the UK, I don't think there are any night pollinating bats. I did check this on the Bat Trust, and I think they're all insectivorous, so none of them are, are after the nectar in plants. But obviously the bats do need those night flying insects, so you're feeding them inadvertently. Before I talk about the particular characteristics of night-scented plants, I wanted to give a brief overview of what, well, basically what the point of scent or fragrance is for plants. Looking into the research on this, it was actually much more complicated than than I thought and and I will be writing a blog post about more of the general science of scent for our website so do watch out for that but at its simplest plants produce scent for a couple of reasons and the first we all know is to attract pollinators but that's a bit too simple because plants and their pollinators they've co-evolved and the interactions are often quite specific so you know plants will have a certain shaped flower which is useful to certain pollinators um so really the question is how do pollinators know one plant from another how can they recognize from a distance that is the plant that i need to spend my energy getting to i guess and that is based on the amount of nectar that the insect knows is available from that particular plant potentially yes because they again they will have evolved to know that particular scent is generally associated with a nectar Lots reward of food. yeah yep. but i mean as in nature things are always a bit more complicated than that and they're tricksy as well they are very tricksy <laughs> in fact some plants produce a huge amount of scent but no nectar that's just mean yeah it is mean <laughs> <laughs> but for most plants they produce what they call a bouquet of volatile organic compounds so I love vocs how, i love how nice the bouquet sounds and then it just goes straight into the volatile organic <laughs> yeah. compound next time i'm sniffing a particularly nice rose i'm just gonna have to comment on its Lovely volatile box, <laughs> box. Yeah. yeah so the plants produce this bouquet in a, a specific ratio of these different volatile chemicals and the ratio indicates to pollinators whether it's a plant of one species or another well over 1700 volatile compounds have been described to date from more than 90 plant families but the true figure is likely to be much higher than that it just takes you know a long time to get around to analyzing all these compounds but mainly they're represented by um, five groups so these are the terpenoids the phenylpropanoids or benzoids um, the fatty acids and amino acid derivatives um, and from that selection you know, that selection of 1,700 compounds that we know of, um, most plants will produce somewhere between 20 and 60 of them. And sometimes these are called volatile plant compounds because they're produced by plants. These compounds can be produced from the flower as a floral fragrance, but they can also be produced from the leaf, from the root and from the stem as well. Can, this is a question you might not know the answer to, can we smell all of those 20 no. to 60? Okay, no, so definitely just can't. insects can smell, yeah. Well, in fact, insect olfactory receptors are highly tuned for certain cocktails of these VOCs. Um, so just like, I mean, all species have a different olfactory sense, you know, so we can't smell um, as strongly as dogs say, something like that. So this, the same variation is true in the insect world, where some only have a handful of, um, some have 10 or less olfactory receptors, um, and some have many hundreds. 
Although we always do say that my big nose means I have slightly more <laughs> olfactory receptors than most. <laughs> you can smell scents that I, I can. Just, I'm part I just dog. Cannot I'm just part yeah. dog. So like I say, these receptors that the insects have, they're finely tuned for certain cocktails, certain mixes of these um, volatile organic compounds. So to understand how this works, just as a bit of analogy, imagine a moth that likes to eat apple pie, right? Imagining. Yeah. So although it might have individual receptors for flour, for butter, for eggs, for sugar, for cinnamon, and for the apples, the research shows that many species aren't attracted by each specific scent when presented individually. So in the lab, they will have taken the individual scents that make up these mixes, these cocktails of scent, presented them to moths or to beetles, to lots of different insects, and they've just watched to see if they are attracted to those scents. And in many cases, they're not attracted to the individual scent. It's only when they're all put together. So it's just like the apple pie cooking in the oven. That's when we recognise it as an apple pie, right? So they recognise that scent signature only when the um, scents are all combined in a certain way and in a certain ratio. So just like we wouldn't be able to smell apple pie from a load of raw ingredients on the side, it's only when they're combined that we are able to recognise the scent. Excellent. That's really interesting. So to give a concrete example of this, something that is happening in pine woodlands in the UK, there is a specific species of sawfly to Scots pine. And this is called Diprion pinei. Uh, and basically, this sawfly is a pest to the tree. So this sawfly oviposits its eggs. It l- just lays its eggs into twigs on the Scots pine. And um, the twigs then start to produce a higher ratio of a chemical called E-beta-farnesine. And that's not really important. But this chemical attracts a parasite. It's in the wasp family. And this parasite will then come and parasitize the eggs of the sawfly. But the interesting thing is that this farnesine chemical itself doesn't attract the parasite. So again, this has been tested in the lab because it's produced by healthy twigs too. So it's only the slightly higher ratio of this chemical to all the other volatile compounds that the twigs are producing all the time. The slightly high ratio in the um, attacked twigs versus the healthy twigs that actually attracts the parasite in. And then, of course, that parasite destroys the eggs of the sawfly pest. So as I say, it's these very specific ratios of all these compounds that are wafting all around us all the time. And most of them, we just never notice. And more and more research is being done on plants' natural propensity to protect themselves via these methods as well for for a vast array of different um, attacking pests and diseases. Yeah, the second main reason plants produce... um, sense is to protect themselves from pests and they can do this in a couple of ways so plant scents can either put off insects by producing scents that inhibit the olfactory receptors of potential pests so it basically just confuses them plants can produce scents that indicate the plant would be unpleasant toxic or even narcotic to eat they can attract in parasites like we've just described which would attack pests and plants can actually even signal to other nearby plants that they are under attack which encourages other plants to produce more of these chemicals in their tissues, which makes them you know, less um, attractive to other pests that are coming into the area as well. But I think maybe it's important just to note that the plants themselves aren't doing this sentiently. They're not you know, aware in the same way that we are. Um, yeah, we, because we 
try and cover the science on this podcast and some things in the popular literature um they have a tendency to say as if the plants are having a chat basically you know as if they're they're all fully conscious of what's going on now there is so much more to learn about this stuff we really are just at the beginnings of understanding it but as far as we are aware these are co-evolved um, mechanisms and then that becomes uh, an, an adaptation over time so it's not necessarily that they're, they're having a chat you know shouting about what's going on but it's just a there's all these mechanisms happening all the time um, but like I say we are only just beginning to understand what's going on here the sad truth is though that human activities are massively impacting on this what is called an odescape so this odescape is all of these scents happening all around us all of the time and and it's the this sort of landscape that um insects are living in um the truth is that human activities are really affecting that landscape and are affecting the way that information is passed between plants and between plants and animals yeah that makes a lot of sense i i remember last spring when everyone was really locked down it was the first time i'd really noticed that horse chestnut flowers are incredibly scented and we just got one out the back here. It's not in our garden, but it's sort of near our garden. And I was wondering what on earth this amazing smell was and then got close to it and it was that. And the fact is normally there's so much traffic, yep. barbecues, you name it, like humans. We do, we're quite smelly, let's face yeah. it. And I've never noticed that before. Yeah, I mean, the, the air smelt sweet, didn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah, because yeah. all the hawthorn was out at the same time. Yeah. You, I mean, we were just walking around, you know, sniffing the air, sniffing the air. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was, it really was stunning. I do actually um, recommend, I don't think many people do, do do this. Obviously now is a really good time to go out and look at blossom. And I think there is a, a hashtag that people can, is it UK blossom? Hashtag UK blossom. Anyway, someone's trying to make it more of a thing in the UK to celebrate blossom, which is great. But if you are walking near a cherry or an apple, do sort of pull one of the flowers close to you and just have a sniff because oh, yeah, yeah. you're Crab really missing out. Well, yeah. They are so beautiful and it's something because they're often higher than us so we don't really pay them as much attention. But yeah, please do sniff away. I'm always getting our customers to smell things in their garden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, interesting. So again, this is why I'm going to write a blog post about this because the, the science on this is really interesting. We just sort of thought that the smell of diesel masks these scents in some way Mm. you know it just it just layers on top and it's so strong you can't smell it but actually things are a bit more complicated than this there is a huge array of what in the literature is called anthropogenic volatile pollutants so these are just human-made chemicals that can significantly impair the ability of plants and animals to communicate like i've said yeah they do this in a couple of ways so human-made chemicals they can mask plant scents just by basically increasing the noise so you know it's like trying to hear a record through a, through a load of background noise um if there's lots of sense around um then it can just mask the signal basically um, which makes it harder for insects to follow um some of the chemicals that we produce particularly when we plant things like mass pine forests are actually producing chemicals similar to native plants but there's no reward at the end of them and this is also true of some artificial chemicals as well so you know we we produce this chemical which is the same scent signature as something an insect is looking for um, but then it follows this scent you know and there's just nothing at the end of it so that's really bad for their 
for them using up energy basically for no reward but the third thing is that with particularly things like ozone which is o3 and that's a byproduct of loads of industrial processes but it also comes from vehicle traffic particularly diesel fans and cars o3 and various other oxygen radicals in the air actually break down these volatile plant compounds so previously where a plant might be wafting out a scent and it might travel, say, two kilometres away on the wind, if that plant is producing its scent near a heavily polluted patch of air, the ozone and the other oxygen radicals in that air will actually interact with those plant compounds. They'll break them down and suddenly that scent, instead of travelling two kilometres, might only be travelling 200 metres before it breaks down. This rapidly makes, you know, the wildflower strips that we quite often see in the middle of busy roads, it makes them look massively uh, more unattractive. Yeah, so it's really important that we try and reduce these emissions as far as possible. And we're not going to, you know, you know the way, drive less, all that sort of stuff. Because it's not just our health that they, these emissions, you know, the particulates that come out of um, cars, it's not just our health that they affect. For insects, this pollution Um, masks the scent that they use to navigate their world and it's like turning off all of our phones our tvs our radios and the internet all at the same time um, because they just can't access all the information that they need and this is doubly so for nocturnal insects because they also don't have the benefit of visual clues to help them get around that's all I wanted to say about the overall way that scent works. Which um, is the tip of the iceberg. Which is the like tip of the said. iceberg. I'm, uh, yeah, and I've just read a couple of reviews on this. So I'm, ju- I'm just starting to understand this, it. This, but, is, this is how Ben's been spending his laid up week, just reading lots and lots of science. Yeah. Is- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that brings us basically back to night scented plants. So night scented plants have a few particular characteristics. Normally, insects have a whole host of cues to go from when looking for a plant, like I've said, for particularly for the day-flying insects. So they have size, shape and colour information and all of that goes hand-in-hand hand with the scent and helps them to discriminate one plant from another. But of course, at night, that's a lot more difficult. So generally, night-scented plants attract insects which are adapted to nighttime activity and that largely includes, particularly in the UK, like I've said, beetles and moths as far as pollinators go you know obviously slugs and snails and different things like that are out at night time as well and you can recognize the fact that they are adapted to flowering at night by their particular shape so the flowers tend to have either a trumpet or a tube-like flower which makes them more specifically adapted to being accessed by moths who have this um, long sort of straw-like proboscis which comes out of the front and that's how they access the nectar at the bottom of the flower and finally the flowers of night scented plants tend to be pale often white and you'll see this in things like jasmine as we've discussed and many of the other plants that we're going to um, suggest you plant in your gardens Uh, and basically that just makes them easier to see in the sort of dusky light and in the moonlight as well which also benefits us because then we can see them when we're sitting out having a barbecue yeah absolutely like yeah yeah and in contrast to diurnal pollinators that's just daytime pollinators nocturnal moths use odor cues over longer distances And so night-scented plants often produce a higher quantity of scent. That's pretty good for us because it smells nicer in our gardens. But something to note is that most plants don't produce most of their floral scent at night. So it might seem that night-flowering plants actually should produce less scent because there's less competition, 
as it were for um for moths that are flying around so so it's a bit weird that they are putting their energy into producing more scents when there's less competition so to understand this one thing we need to consider is something called the tropospheric boundary layer and that is basically the lowest layer of atmosphere that is significantly affected by processes on the Earth's surface. So that's things like the air being warmed by the, the surface of the Earth and uh, by air turbulence, which um, you know obviously mixes the scents around in the air. And that can be caused by wind shear over surface features like hills or even buildings. And during the day, this boundary layer can be several kilometres high. So that's when the sun's heat during the daytime is hitting the earth, radiating back from the surface and warming the air. Um, but at night, when that's not happening, the boundary layer is much lower. In the daytime, as I said, it can be several kilometres high. At night time, this boundary layer might only be 10 to 100 metres high. So actually, as a result, night-scented plants are pumping their scent into a smaller volume, which still contains all of the other compounds being produced by the non-floral parts of the other plant, so by all the stems and the roots and the leaves. So actually, night-scented plants may be flowering at a time when there is more background noise per cubic metre than during the daytime when most other plants um, are scented. And that is why they tend to produce more scent overall. So that's enough of the science behind scented plants. We're just now going to give you some good plants for night scent. Here are our top plants to grow in your gardens at home. So we're going to start with perennials. And I've put down here Jasminum officinale because jasmine is that classic Mediterranean scented plant. But actually in the UK, it's probably not the best plant, is it? Because it really requires those warm, Mm. warm evenings to put its scent out. If you are going to plant it, plant it against like a south facing wall, I think, because then the the actual heat of the wall from the sun during the day will help promote those uh, volatiles. um, And to help it give off its scent. Yeah. And a wall is better than uh, a fence for that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Holds more heat. But probably better for the UK if you want that jasmine type scent is a plant called Trachylospermum jasminoides. Um, one of its common names is star jasmine. And this is, it's, they say it's borderline hardy, but it, it seems hardy we've enough in Nottingham. We've it all over. Yeah, yeah. It's, we've never had a problem. No, it survived beast from the east, didn't it? In a it sheltered did. spot. No problem. It's also evergreen. So it's a bit of a go-to garden plant, actually, because it we will just cover. Put it in everywhere. <laughs> it's pretty well behaved as a cli- as far as climbers go and its leaves even though they remain on the plant turn red in the in the cold weather so it's really beautiful but yeah the scent is amazing yeah it's got a jasmine like scent but it doesn't require such warm weather for it to put that scent out mm. so yeah if you want that classic mediterranean evening fragrance i really recommend this trechelosperbum jasminoides um another climber though is wisteria and there's several different types of wisteria but wisteria floribunda um, is known for having a particularly nice evening scent. That's the Japanese wisteria, isn't it? I trust you on that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Go ahead. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you are thinking about planting a wisteria at home, you know, if you also want the addition of scent as well, that's probably one of the ones to go for. I didn't know until I started looking this up. There is a fragrant hosta, hosta plantaginea which is uh, the fragrant plantain lily. Uh, It just looks like a normal hosta. It's got sort of limey green leaves. Mm. Um, The flowers look exactly like the normal hosta flowers, but it's heavily scented in the evening. So yeah, if you've got a woodlandy sort of garden and you're a hosta fan, why not plant one of those? And hostas are great in pots as well, of course. Yeah, definitely. 
if you're looking for a shrub there's a, a quite commonly grown shrub you can buy it in all of the garden centers called pittosporum um the, the the common one you find is pittosporum tenuifolium we've planted it in a few gardens haven't we yeah they're really good they, they'll definitely deal with part shade they've got small glossy leaves and they come in a variety of different colored leaves yeah and they're evergreen again yeah they're really really beautiful shrubs actually because we've planted it in people's gardens and we're there during the daytime i hadn't realized until i was doing the research for this that they've got a beautiful evening scent by oh. all accounts this is the flower is it the flower yeah okay so let it because quite a lot of people do clip them so i guess you obviously have to let them yes, grow exactly up and flower right. yeah okay yeah, so as a ah. freestanding shrub they would do better than if you're planting it as a hedge or something like that i but... wonder if any of our customers will let us just visit their garden at like 11 p.m just to, <laughs> just to sniff no sniff patrol maybe not maybe <laughs> <No>. not <laughs> Um, yeah, so those are some perennials that you can plant. So, you know, you'll get that scent year after year. But if you just want something to grow in a pot or if you're looking for something shorter that you can move around the garden, you know, something, sorry, uh, an annual or a biennial that is not going to come back every year, um, then these are a few of our favourites and we've actually grown all of these ourselves. So first of all is Hesperus matronalis, which is the sweet rocket. One of my absolute favourites. It's a stunner. It's got sort of purple um they call it they, they used to be called cruciferae didn't they because they've got a cross-shaped four, flower yeah, four yeah. petals but it can grow quite tall yeah about a meter and a half the one we had uh, in one of our clients gardens last year and what was interesting actually with that particular one so it is biennial so you, you sow it one year and then it will flower in the next but yeah, sometimes like, um, if you're lucky it can be a short-lived perennial and by short-lived i mean probably only a couple of years um where it's actually flowering so that the one that was flowering last year is about to flower again this year. So yeah. Yeah. yeah a bit like foxgloves. Yeah. Generally biennial, but they can come back. Another one is Nicotiana sylvestris, which is a very tall, it's an annual or you grow it as an annual in the UK, at least. Um, it can get up to about, oh, about four feet, five feet high, yeah, something yeah. like that. And it's got these tube shaped flowers. Again, beautiful, spicy scent in the evening. That's got a white flower. Um, but there are also much smaller hybrid varieties and these will often just be labeled nicotiana some people say nicotiana as well because it's actually the tobacco plant so hence nicotine yeah so that if you're buying a packet and it just says nicotiana or nicotiana and then a cultivar name like lime green or fragrant cloud something like that they tend to be short plants about, that about you grow 40 as an centimeters yeah, exactly. roughly yeah. perfect for a pot yeah good for the front of a border or just for filling in some gaps we've sat in many a, a pub garden actually where nicotiana has been grown uh the, one enlightened pub owner obviously realized the benefits of keeping his punters happy with some yeah. nice smells yeah it was lovely they had yeah. these sort of half barrels didn't they and yeah. the great big nicotiana sylvestris in the middle and it was underplanted with something i forget now but yeah, yeah. it smelled Excellent. amazing if any of you are landlords yeah <laughs> there's some advice for you yeah um another of our favorites is the night flocks the um latin and names for these will be in the show notes because i'm not obviously going to spell these out but this one is zalusianskia ovata perfect for a small pot if you have got um a table on a patio and you've only got a small space this is the one i would plant and it, to grow from seed as well you can from, grow it from, from seed now? i've failed late. three years in a row so I, <laughs> sorry i just so put the spotlight on you there. yeah i think i'm gonna buy some as plugs <laughs> i just don't have luck with that there's the common evening primrose onothera um, biennis which is naturalized it's not native but it's naturalized all over the uk again stunning evening scent common garden plant and finally 
Um, one that you can just sprinkle seeds in amongst borders. You can grow it in a pot as well. Perfect in a you know a, a thin border next to your back door. Anywhere that you can fit it in, basically, because we love it so much. And that is the night scented stock. And we found that it really is better to direct sow that one. It doesn't really like being moved. So rather than growing it in trays and then transplanting, just just put a bit of seed, like like Ben said, at the front of a border or something, and it'll happily grow away. Yeah, they say to thin it out to a foot between plants, but we just don't bother. Well, we didn't, but then you did decide that maybe it would have looked better. I, if I, we would, had. I would thin it out a bit. <laughs> Um, we had it like grass yeah. in front of our tomatoes but to yeah. be fair we do have a tiny garden i just wanted to have lots of different plants so yeah. and keep them quite small which i think helped yeah they're fairly short aren't yeah. they um, oh, they just smell amazing they're like um what do they remind me of uh chai masala yeah it's, oh, it's yeah. spicy yeah. yeah spicy delicious and they're one of those plants that will flower somewhere between about six to eight weeks after sowing mm. so you can successionally sow so we would well we're planning this year to be sowing them into a new pot every three weeks and that will keep you going right until through to september something like that yeah just absolutely stunning it's the first night scented plant that we grew at home where we recognized the massive massive influx of moths and bats well i wouldn't say it was an influx of bats but we certainly had a bat flying around out the back and we are in a a really urban area it's all houses so that was we like to think it was because of what we planted. Well, it, it was because the, the, the stocks attract all, attracted all the moths mm. in, you know, and obviously then the bats were after the moths. Yep. So, you know, just one thing to say that these plants are attracting moths in because of the nectar. Um, you still need lots of native plants because the native plants, if you've got room for them and they're good for your garden, are providing the leaves that the um, larvae, you know, the caterpillars, of these moths need you know all these plants are going to be providing that quick nectar rush it's going to be you know attracting the moths in so they can mate but that's only if the caterpillars have actually been uh, hatched successfully exactly right so there are some native um, night scented plants that we like as well number one of course is the native honeysuckle Lanicera periclymenum. Which was, I have to point out, going to be today's native plant of the podcast, but we couldn't find enough science to give you a good amount of information. So we're going to have to delay that. Yeah, searched high and low, scoured the journals. But it is worth planting. Absolutely worth planting. It is well known for being good for lots of different wildlife, including, is it the White Admiral? butterfly now you're testing me but i think it is just also really beautiful during the day as well so obviously i think most people do know what the honeysuckle flower looks like but they're they are quite showy um for a night scented plant so yeah definitely pop one of those in yeah i mean we definitely said in a previous episode dormice use its um, peeling bark to build their nests as well so yeah it's absolutely stunning and there's loads and loads of cultivars so we will come back to it but yeah just you know we wanted to do the sexual antics bit and there's just yeah just no research on it so um yeah i need to get in touch with a a real botanist and and get them to give me the lowdown on that but the other ones are a couple of silenes and one of these is going to be our native plant of the week that's going to be silene nutans or nutans um but the other one is silene noctiflora and the silene are uh, sort of in the campion family you might know the pink campion and that's called the night flowering catchfly silene noctiflora and again it's a a great one to grow in your garden so all of these plants they should be positioned where you'll get the most benefit of them like we've said um think about where you're actually going to sit in your garden in the evening and just plant them close by you know so if you've got a wall next to your patio 
perfect place for a climber um, if you've got a table and chairs outside you know plant the night flocks in a pot and if you're growing night stocks or something like that in the border closest to the house would be great um, and also if you can try and put them into a fairly sheltered spot because just it traps the fragrance then doesn't it and it doesn't waft away on the air yeah like a courtyard is actually a really nice place to have these scented plants because they it just traps it right close to where you're sitting but yeah. yeah, it's a big um, part of the Persian gardens, isn't it? In courtyards where they have all the, a lot of the citrus are scented and you yeah. get that scent in the evening. So yeah, that's it for night scented plants for this week. And just before we go on to uh, the native plant of the week... We're going to be thanking everybody who has donated to our GoFundMe. Yeah, so we just wanted to say another huge thank you to the amazing donations of all of you guys, our listeners. We're already a third of the way towards our target, which simply helps us cover the costs of running the podcast. If you want to know more about what we're raising money for, we have a bonus episode about the plans for the podcast and you can follow links to our GoFundMe page called Get the Wildlife Podcast Some Gear in the show notes. We're grateful for any donations, however much it is. So this week, we'd like to thank... Matthew Robinson. Gina Law. Claire A. Kieran and Kaz. Graham Middleton. Hello, Dad. Pete and Victoria. Hello, Uncle and Auntie. Nikki, John Revel, and last but not least, Andrew and Edward Thompson, Aldenate, Barry. <laughs> Barry. <laughs> Sorry, they're our friends. Yeah, they've got a lot of surnames. Yeah, thank you very much, everybody. And uh, yeah, it just helps us run the podcast. Just one thing to say for any future donations, uh, just be aware if you don't want your name to be read out, please make the donation private and say so in the comment on the GoFundMe page. Otherwise, we will thank everybody who makes a donation to yeah. the podcast. Thank you ever so much, everyone. Very, very generous. So with that said, on to our native plant of the week, the Nottingham Catchfly. The Nottingham Catchfly. So as Ben said a few minutes ago, this is Silene Newtons or Nuttons, not entirely sure which, as usual. And Newtons or Nuttons means nodding and describes the nodding flowers of this plant. The plant was first recorded by Thomas Willisell in circa 1669. And that record is written into a book by naturalist John Ray, who the year after, so 1670, visited Nottingham Castle whilst drinking Damnable strong ale. I think we've all been there. We've Anyone all that it. lives in yeah. Nottingham. <laughs> well, it's there's a must. four pubs right opposite the, uh, the castle, isn't there? <laughs> During which he described a wild white catchfly, which he sub- subsequently recorded as the Nottingham catchfly. Now, sadly, the plant has actually been missing from the castle's craggy cliffs since the 1930s. However, it has retained its name, so we've still got a bit of the Nottingham fame in there. The good news is that as part of the ongoing Nottingham Castle renovation, there's actually a project that was set up last year where people have been growing plants from seed to plant back into the castle grounds. So yeah, this that's is brilliant. a really good example of humans being able to reverse the damage that we've done in, in previous years. Now, the Nottingham catchfly is in the same genus as the pink, white and bladder campion that are common wildflowers across the UK. It's a long-lived perennial which forms a rosette of loosely kind of spoon-shaped leaves at the base. Its upright flowering stems generally are around between 45 and 60 centimetres tall. However, they have been found to be over a metre. That's not as common, though. 
And the flowers themselves hang on stalks with a sort of pinky calyx, which is just the protective casing, and creamy white, but sometimes, but rarely, pink petals. They're really, really beautiful. Now, the petals are deeply bifid, which is just a fancy way of saying that they are cleft, a bit like a hoof. And they're reflexed once they've emerged, once the flower actually emerges. And that just means, I don't know if any of you have seen cyclamen flowers, but they're sort of bent backwards um, yeah, the petals themselves. are, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Later on, they become inrolled, but I'll talk a bit more about that in the sexual antics section. The flowers can be quite inconspicuous in the daytime because these petals are rolled inwards, but at dusk, the lobes unfurl, and this is when they exude a sweet-smelling fragrance to attract the pollinators. They can be very, very variable plants. Robust British plants have been called subspecies smithiana. However, there's a bit of disagreement about this. And some botanists say that subspecies smithiana might not be worthy of a subspecies status. And that's because in one experiment, a reduced form, i.e. a small specimen taken from a shingle ridge at Dungeness down in the south, put on luxuriant growth when transplanted to Kew. Now, that's actually a quote from the paper, which showed that local conditions are more likely to to determine size and features than subspecies status. So basically, it's just saying that if you've got a plant growing in one area that has slightly more wind or, you know, salt-laden wind, especially if it's on the coast, it's just not going to get to quite the same stature as one that's growing in a more sheltered location. It actually has, despite looking like quite a delicate plant on this on the surface quite a tough taproot and fairly thick creeping rhizomes now these actually allow it to root into cracks in rocky substrata which anchors the plant in those exposed locations where it's growing particularly where it's growing on these craggy coastal outcrops in terms of its habitat and distribution, so if you wanted to go out and actually see some of this in the wild, because we do have it, although not in Nottingham at the moment, it's characteristic of dry, grassy or bare patches, such as unimproved chalk grassland, steep coastal and inland cliffs, but do be careful on cliffs, don't go scrambling around looking for this. <laughs> don't want to be responsible for any no, accidents. Especially after that rockfall last week. Oh yeah, and that was really... Endorse it. Oh, that, and I kind of want to go see that, but not close, obviously. Um, sandbanks, shingle ridges, and also the fissures of limestone crags and outcrops. It's also occasionally found in acidic soils, which overlie shingle. In Britain, it can also be found along road verges, in old quarries, and along sea walls. In general, although open conditions are preferred, the plants themselves are actually capable of tolerating partial shade and they have been found to be growing in sparse woodland where they've been under the canopy of a hawthorn hedge. So you can imagine it being quite shady down there. Silene Newtons has a Euro-Siberian temperate distribution and is widespread across most of Europe uh, with southern limits in Spain and Macedonia and its northern limits extend all the way to Finland and Sweden. In Central Asia, it's found through Siberia as far east as Lake Baikal. 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 <laughs> Thanks. My mate wrote a song about Lake Baikal once. Oh, well, that's why you know how to pronounce it yeah. then. <laughs> well, I don't know if you pronounced it right. You might have just I don't know if this song sold well in Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> in Great Britain, it's a fairly lowland species, recorded up to about 244 metres in Derbyshire, where it still occurs inland. Was and, that supposed to be a Derbyshire uh, accent? I think so. I'm really sorry if you're from Derbyshire. Um, <laughs> but it has, <laughs> but it has interestingly been found up to 2,450 metres in the Bernina 
Benina, I don't know how to pronounce that either, mountain range in the Alps. She's got a geography degree from Cambridge, you know. Shh. <laughs> My lecturers might be listening. <laughs> now, in Britain, the records show scattered populations along cliff tops, as we said, and ledges along the coastlines of particularly the south and southeast England, but also North Wales from the Great Orme to Colwyn Bay and from the northeast coastlines of Angus in Ki- and Kincardineshire. Hello, Scottish listeners. Please correct us. How are you supposed to say that? (laughs) This is a really hard plant to talk about and get the pronunciations right. Anyway, I'll I'll just uh, struggle on. It's not the botany, it's your geography that's letting you down. (laughs) Well, I've just learned too much about plants. It's pushed the geography out of my head. As we said before about it being in Nottingham, it did used to have a much wider inland distribution and unfortunately it has declined. And actually inland populations are now almost exclusively confined to the Peak District, and that's within Staffordshire and Derbyshire. You mean sta for four a dish higher. <laughs> Don't confuse me anymore. Um yeah, we are we should go on an excursion and go and see some of this in the wild, definitely. Yeah, it's on our list, it. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that reduction in the inland range is probably caused by actually a cessation of traditional grazing in some areas because the grazing keeps grasses low, which actually allows this flower to thrive. Yeah, same as lots of traditional meadow plants as well, isn't it? It is, but also linked to the use of herbicides, of course. And also when it's on the coast where we do have fantastic access for people to go walking, it can also be just simply trodden on. It doesn't tend to tolerate that well. So where it exists near coastal footpaths, where lots of people are walking all the time, then yeah, it's it's susceptible to basically being killed off. Now, in our gardens, it can be easily grown amongst long grass alongside other meadow plants and is actually particularly useful in dry areas because, as you can imagine, it does grow in these craggy rocks naturally where there isn't going to be a whole lot of moisture and that long taproot just enables it to access the moisture that it needs. So that's a little bit about where it grows and what it looks like. But now, as always, let's move on to the sexual antics of the Silene Newtons. And boy, do we have a lot of botany in here for you. <laughs> There's quite a few new words here, but we, as we always say, we're going to keep repeating them and it, we're learning all the time as well. So we're hoping that you're also enjoying learning the botanical side of things. Silene nutans is a gynodioecious species. Now, gynodiaece is somewhere between hermaphroditism, whereby the flowers exhibit both the male and female plant parts within one flower and dioecy which describes flowers that have two distinct morphs so you have the male flowers and you have the female flowers and dioecious literally means two houses so that refers to where plants whole plants can either have only male flowers and or only female flowers and thereby you need the two different plants for a successful pollination in gynodioecious species most individuals are hermaphrodite but some individuals are female only. Now, this is caused by a genetic mutation that inhibits some individuals from producing pollen, i.e. The, the male sexual parts of the flower, while keeping the female reproductive parts intact. 
And it is a bit of a strange adaptation because being hermaphrodite seems to have many different advantages, especially if you can prevent self-pollination in some way, if you require as we said before, if you are an outcrossing plant, you need another plant's genetic material to pollinate successfully. It's thought that there's an advantage to having these female-only flower plants if they can save energy from not producing pollen, which then allows them to make either seedlings of higher quality or more flowers or even have a higher fruit set or higher total seed production, heavier seeds or better germination rates. So it's essentially saying these female-only plants, if they're not producing pollen, they're obviously, they've got a little bit more energy to put into the other parts, as I've just said. Gynodiase is extremely rare, and fewer than 1% of flowering plants exhibit it. So actually, it's quite a unique thing for this uh, Silene Newtowns to have. It's very interesting. Yeah, a lot of the, nearly all of the campions, as far as I'm aware, do this. So like we said before, the bladder, pink and white campion. Yeah. Yep. It's also doubly strange for this to be a feature because the flowers' anthers release their pollens. This is obviously the flowers that do have the male parts. They release their pollen before the stigma of the same flower is receptive. And this is how the plant prevents self-pollination. So if you can imagine with one single plant, you've got a couple of a few flowers on it and only the male parts are protruding. So an insect can come and collect the pollen without pollinating the female part, part of that particular flower. This is called protandry or to be protandrous. In essence, it does prevent self-pollination, as I've said, and the male and female organs are active at different times. Actually, if you can remember, this is the same method that we discussed in the ivy episode quite a few episodes ago now, isn't it? Yeah, you don't get a bee or or what have you knocking pollen from from one to the other. And again, this contrast with primroses or purple loosestrife, which have also been featured as our native plant of the week on previous episodes, which physically separate the two organs, even within the same flower. So they, they are accessible at the same time, but they just they're physically separated to help prevent self-pollination. So it's just giving an idea that, of these different strategies that different plants use. Yeah, all sorts of different ways of preventing self-pollination, isn't but there? I, I feel like we should do a plant that actually does self-pollinate soon just so we can get a bit more variety but anyway that's uh i'm sure it'll come up soon now this is where i get i got quite excited reading about how this plant actually operates if you like to attract in its pollinators now the plants flower at dusk and they actually open on three successive evenings that's each flower and they're pollinated by a number of different insect species especially night flying moths now on day one of an individual flower opening, it will open up and the petals will sweep back, as I said, like a cyclamen, and you'll get the first set of anthers protruding and they contain the pollen for those night flying moths. On day two, the petals come forward a bit so it looks more like a like a flower, a typical flower, and the first set of anthers simply wither away. On night two, A new set of anthers actually protrudes with fresh pollen, again, for the night-scented moths. But on day three, you actually get something very different happen. The second set of anthers drop off, as the first ones did after day one, and the petals roll inwards, and that is when the female part of the flower protrudes. So within a population in an area, you can imagine that some flowers will have their female parts out and some flowers will have just their male parts out, and that's how you get the cross-pollination between plants. 
when successful pollination has happened, the seeds are very, very small. We're talking 0.7 uh, to 1 millimetre. They're black, they're irregularly kidney-shaped and disperse via a simple sensor mechanism. And that just, is, in fact, this is common to all of the, the campions that we've just mentioned. If you shake the seed head, or like a poppy, if you shake the seed head, it rattles. And what actually happens is there are little openings and wind, when it rocks the stem, just scatter the, the seeds around. Yeah, the sensor mechanism name comes from, if you see people in the church, particularly if you're Catholic... You know, they put the incense into that mm. swinging thing on the end and they just waft it from side to side. That's where the name comes from. Yep. So it's that, it's that sort of mechanism swinging in the air. What's interesting is despite the fact that they do pollinate and they do produce seed, seedlings are actually very rarely seen in the wild. And it's believed that they're more commonly spread through these rhizomes coming off from the roots, but also from fallen stems. And we've talked about uh, how horticulturalists can layer plants by simply pinning a branch down to the ground and having it root well with the Silene nutans it naturally does this to an extent and that with the rhizometer spreading can actually produce quite large clumps of individuals so what wildlife does Silene nutans attract as i said it's largely pollinated by night flying moths but it's also visited by some leaf mining flies and a specialist weevil one notable daytime exception uh, this is a, an interesting part of the um, ecology of this flower, is that the Bombus terrestris, the buff-tailed bumblebee, actually thieves from this plant. Now, by robbing it, I mean it accesses the nectar without going, without bothering to do any pollination. It's extremely cheeky of this bumblebee. It just wants a quick drink. We talked about it on our salvia in our own garden. We've seen bumblebees drill a little hole into the side of the flower where they just get to the nectary and just have a little drink without touching any anthers or stigmas. And the reason why the buff-tailed bumblebee does this on this particular plant, it obviously knows there's some nectar at the base of it, but also it's just simply too big to get into the flower and, and get the nectar by any other means. This process is actually seen in various other insects as well, and it's called nectar robbing or even floral larceny in the ecological literature. Yeah, thieving, thieving bees. <laughs> now, in terms of pollination, all thievery aside, the plant actually wants to attract these night flying moths because they're the guys that are going to pick up the pollen and transfer it from one plant to another. And it is visited by many different moths, including the white spot and the netted pug. But most interestingly, it has to be said, by the micromoth Coleophora nutantella. The larvae of this micromoth forms a tubular sil silken case attached to the side of a seed pod of pretty much most of the campions, but including Silene nutans. And then that larvae feeds on the seeds within. So we mentioned about planting natives for the leaves, because quite often caterpillars, you know, a very hungry caterpillar does eat a lot of leaf, but also this particular moth eats the seeds of the flower yeah that's quite well i don't know if it's unusual i'm hesitant to say that sort of stuff because i've got no idea but i've we, not heard of it before no um, no you know seeds actually being the larval food plant of a caterpillar no yeah. it is really interesting something to look out for again so if you'd like to be attracting more moths into your garden and to have this sweetly scented night flowering plant how do you go about it now as we've intimated, it prefers fairly well-drained, neutral or alkaline soil. Yeah, just because it comes from 
soils over limestone normally, doesn't it? Indeed, which are is where you get your alkalinity from. And it particularly dislikes winter wet. So if you've got an acidic, heavy clay, then it probably isn't the plant for you. No. However, if you do have the right conditions, it doesn't actually mind an exposed location, as we said, grows on the coast. But the research shows it will probably grow taller and flower more if it's not too battered by wind and rain. So if you've got a slightly more sheltered place for it, then you're going to get more flower. Yeah, I think if you are by the coast, then it will grow as yeah. it naturally does by the coast, basically. Indeed. So Yeah. It will also do best in full sun, although it has been found growing well in partial shade. And as an individual specimen, I think it would do quite well if you have like a tricky, dry, rocky or sandy area, maybe a rockery or something. Yeah, they're a bit out of favour at the minute, but if you do have a rockery, yeah, it's a good plant for them. I think so, yeah. So rockeries aside, given the conditions that I've described that it prefers, in most gardens, its best use would be as a really nice addition, I think, to long grass. So for those of you who we've persuaded to do no mow may, if you could maybe get yourself some Silene newtans and pop it into that long grass area, and if you do extend your no mow may throughout the summer, then you'll be able to get this plant to flower for the for the rest of the summer and enjoy its scent. Yeah, I'd especially put it in if you know in advance that you're going to be allowing your grass to grow up uh, long enough for the plant to set seed, which will be towards the end of the summertime. Um, and also, like Ellie said, it doesn't... It's been found to, to not particularly like being trampled on. So, you know, if you're... Um, I don't know. If you're going to do the no mow may, then mow it off and have kids playing football the rest of the summer. It's probably not the best um, plant for it. But if you do have, like we said, some uh, some area of grass in your garden that you can extend no mow may to knee high July or whatever, then uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good plant to have. Um, yeah, and to prop to propagate it or to get yourself some, you could try taking some stem cuttings from existing plants, not in the wild, I should say. No from a friend or a neighbor or something but by far the easiest way to get plants is to sow from seed or to buy as plugs which you can get hold of both from most wildflower suppliers and the way if you're going to sow seed the way to do it is to sow in March or in September those are the two general periods of time for wildflower seeds because that's when they're usually dropped isn't it yeah, the September ones you'd be sowing and then overwintering so they get a bit of a head start on the following year. Indeed. And you'd sow them into pots, uh, as Ben said, to overwinter if you're sowing in September. Sow onto a seed compost and then cover very lightly and then keep moist, but then plant out when the roots are established the following year. If you're going down the plug route, then by all means get plugs and plant them as soon as they arrive from the supply because they do tend to come as tiny little, as Ben said before, little shot glasses of uh, of roots and, and plants. You have to really know where you've put them so you can monitor whether or not you've lost it. Yeah, and something that uh, is worth doing if you are planting plugs is make sure they are really well secured into the ground give them a proper press down with your finger and thumb because in one garden yeah we've (laughs) had oh what we on the third go of planting some plugs in uh into what will be one day a beautiful wildflower lawn area at the bottom of their garden but the squirrels are just coming and they're just yanking them out yanking them out for no reason i'm pretty Um, sure it is the squirrels because i know blackbirds do do that blackbirds can do the same yeah they just pull them out and get to the worms underneath so yeah just give them a a real proper um, press in with your thumb and then give them a water as well as an aside if you are sowing seed in march as you can 
it's unlikely your plants are unlikely to flower in their first year unless you live somewhere further north and have a really long growing season so in one study only plants from northern sweden flowered in the autumn of their first year just because they've got such much longer days during the summer so if you're listening and you're towards the north of scotland then you've got a chance of getting a first year flower silene newtans yeah and like we said some part of its natural range is the uh, northeast coast of scotland as well Mm. And then in terms of cultivars, there is actually one uh, that's available and that's called confetti, which is just slightly more floriferous, which means just has more flowers. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, the wild variety is, is perfectly adequate, particularly for the moths. Cool. And if you do grow it, do get in touch and let us know how you get on. Yeah, send us a photo. And you might actually be able to see it at Nottingham Castle within a year or two. Yeah, so we can go to the pub and do ecology at the same time. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> it's like our dream. So yeah, that that brings me to the end of this week's Plant of the Week, Native Plant of the Week. But if you've liked today's episode, please do leave us a review on iTunes, which just helps us to get into the ears of new listeners, really. Um, Yeah, it's really nice to read some nice reviews if you've got nice things to say. Um, if you're not an Apple user, then we're also now on Google Podcasts. We're on Amazon Music and Spotify too. So again, please do share the podcast with friends and family, anyone that would be interested in learning more about how to garden for wildlife. And over the coming weeks, we will be sharing, as we said, some fantastic facts from our friend from the RHS, Gareth Richards' new book, Do Bees Need Weeds? Yep, they'll be on Twitter and Facebook. And like we said at the beginning, we have our interview with him as our episode next week. Fab. So until the next time, the next episode, keep gardening and uh, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.